Well, welcome to Christmas at Pleasant City Church. I know Christian has already welcomed you to that, but I want to say it again because I think this is the longest our church has ever went, uh, like getting into the Christmas spirit around here. Like we're at December 10th already, and uh, we're just now getting into it. And I don't know about you, but I just kind of want to be a little transparent with you this morning. And I really want you to be transparent with me because I need somebody to validate what I'm feeling, all right? So if this is you, here's what I'm going to ask. I don't ask this often, but I need full participation here if this is indeed you, okay? When I ask you a question, I just want you to raise your hand if you find yourself in the same position I find myself in, all right? So here we go. Um, it's already December 10th, and I'm already feeling just straight up covered up, right? Like just covered up. And for some of us, these guys are already raising their hands. They don't even know what we're asking. I like you guys. <laughs> Raise your hand if you're covered up right now with end-of-the-year things associated with your job, like end-of-the-year budget stuff, end-of-the-year. Some of you teachers out there, you got exams coming up this week. Students, you got exams coming up. Raise your hand high. All right, yeah, okay, I see. All right, you put your hands down. Raise your hand if you are covered up with figuring out Christmas presents for people right now. Just go ahead and raise your hand. Man, there's a lot of you in this room right now with that one. That's a big one. Uh, me and my wife have an arrangement, all right? Here's the arrangement. I take care of my four boys, and Crystal takes care of every single other person that we're mildly acquainted with. <laughs> the etiquette requires a gift, all right? And then the, the, the thing that's even worse is... I don't even wrap my boys' presents. She wraps everything, all right? So for her, she gets all that together, and basically all I do is just click a few buttons on my phone, and I'm good to go. But man, it like for some of us, we're covered up with that. Like my son, my five-year-old, he has said this. I, I know he said it at least 100 times in the past 10 days. Dad, I think I know what I want for Christmas now. <laughs> I'm like, son, like, this isn't like a free-for-all. I'm not a genie. But for some of us, we're covered up with Christmas presents. Here's one. How many of you feel covered up right now with Christmas parties, programs, and get-togethers? Raise your hand. Okay, there's a few of you out there. I, I'm feeling that right now. Uh, we're, we're excited. Like, I love... Uh, all the stuff that we get to be a part of. But man, there's a lot. There's kids programs. There's parties to go to. There's get-togethers. I actually was figuring it up last night. Between now and Christmas Day, I have something going on every night except one night, all right, with people. And some of you are feeling that. Like some of you got it, figured out, you've worked your schedule out. We got this kids program on this day. We've got this over here on this night. We've got, you know, uh, the, the dinner with the Joneses on this day. I mean, we've got it all set into our schedule. And let's be honest, for all of us in this room, or for most of us in this room, there's this simmering stress that we're dealing with. And the fact of the matter is, I don't know what kind of extreme you're at. Maybe you're in the extreme of just every night you've got something going on. Every day you've got something to think about or put together this Christmas season, whether it's your job or your family or your social calendar. Maybe it's that. Or maybe, just maybe, you're feeling the complete opposite of that. Maybe, maybe you haven't been invited to anything this Christmas. I talked to an elderly uh, person the other day, an elderly gentleman that I'm connected with, and 
I was talking, and, um, and he was just telling me how, how life has changed for him. How years ago, uh, his wife was alive, and how Christmas was there in the home with all the kids and the grandkids. And, and, and he, he really just confessed to me over the phone. He said, you know, Jonathan, I, I seldom see any of my kids or my grandkids anymore at Christmas. I don't hear from them much throughout the year, and I don't really hear from them at Christmas. And maybe you find yourself in that position. Maybe you're sitting here, and, and this season just accentuates your loneliness. And the fact of the matter is, whether you're fatigued uh, by being invited to something every night, or whether you're feeling the rejection and the loneliness of not being invited to anything, the truth is this. That over 2,000 years later, God is still inviting us into the Christmas story. That if you're here this morning, you're hearing the word of God that we're going to talk about this morning. He is inviting you in to the Christmas story. That you are on the Christmas guest list of heaven. And the question's going to be, are you going to be the one that comes into the Christmas story. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 is the biggest chapter in the New Testament. There's more verses in Luke 1 than any other chapter in the New Testament. And what we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about one of the biggest sections in the biggest chapter of the New Testament. And it's all devoted around this character that was on the guest list of Christmas named Mary. And so look with me here in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now, for some of you that already know this, you know what's ahead. But if you, if you don't know this, if you were to go and read the first part of Luke chapter 1, you would find out about this woman named Elizabeth who was barren for many years. And miraculously, she's going to have a son. And so this is the person it's talking about. So in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now there's a couple things I want us to pick up here in just these first few verses. The first thing is this. This is like a very unlikely place to happen. All right. Nazareth was like the hick town of Galilee. All right. It's like in the backwoods. No one ever visits there. There's nothing to see there. In fact, it, most people that lived there were just like, oh, I hate living here. That's what Nazareth was. It was this unlikely place for this kind of announcement. And it was also an unlikely person. Unlikely person. This young woman, Mary, most scholars believe she's anywhere from 12 to 16 years of age. And I'll be honest, like when I hear that, my mind can't really get on the fact that she's pledged to be married at 12. So I kind of have to, in my own heart, just say, okay, she's probably 16, all right? So for this, we're going to just pretend she's 16, all right? But here's what we know about Mary. She's a virgin, She's a virgin, and, and some people have tried to break this up and say that just means young woman, and the Hebrew word Alma can mean abstinent, sexually abstinent, or virgin. But the word here, the Greek word here is Parthenon, and the word Parthenon always exclusively means 
abstinent. Not just a young woman, but this is a woman who's never been intimate with someone. This is, this is the person that we're talking about here. And what we find in the text is she's pledged to be married. She's pledged to be married. She's, she's engaged to be married. And when we think of engagement, we think of this thing where you get on one knee, you give a ring away, and, and, and more than likely it's going to happen. But there's not really any commitment outside of maybe the deposit at the wedding venue and the ring you, you put on the finger. But, but in this day and age, pledged to be married in many rites, they were in some ways already married. In fact, in order to break this off, you would actually need a legal divorce to break off this inner period between actually not being married and being married. That was the time frame they were in. It was this idea that they had all the responsibility of marriage with none of the marriage benefits. And this is where we find Mary Right there in the story. And verse 28 says this. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now it's interesting because if you have a King James Bible there, like the old, just regular old, good old King James, it doesn't say that. It says, Hail, H-A-I-L, Hail, Thou art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And the reason I want to share with you what the King James Version says is because this one little greeting from Gabriel, this one little greeting from Gabriel is where it all started for the Catholic Church and for football, right? This is the Hail Mary. This is the Hail Mary right here in this little verse. This little phrase is where the start of some very terrible theology came from. Right here in this little passage that we're reading. Mary in some circles has been made out to be someone that is literally equal with Jesus and God. Like I've, I've been to Guatemala before. This place is steeped in, in, in Roman Catholicism, steep Catholic tradition. And they literally worship Mary as much as they worship God. Sometimes even more. They pray more to Mary. And what's crazy about it is that entire theological idea comes right from this one little passage. In fact, I remember growing up, there was a movie that came out when I was like 11 years old uh, called Sister Act. And I don't know if you remember this movie. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg's in it, and she, she like sees a murder or something, and like they put her in witness protection, so they stick her in a convent where she has to become a nun. Like she's a lounge singer in Vegas, and now she's a nun, right? And, like, they had this great soundtrack to the movie. And, you know, as an 11-year-old, I remember hearing the soundtrack and be like, man, this is a cool song, you know. And, and I actually thought about this, like, when I was preparing the message. And this is what one of their songs says. And this isn't just a song in the movie. This is a song that they sing in church. Listen to what it says. Hail, holy queen enthroned above. O Maria, hail, mother of mercy and of love. O Maria, triumph, all ye cherubim, sing with us, ye seraphim, get the angels involved. Heaven and earth resound the hymn, and then they sing in Latin, and here's what it translates. Hail, queen, 
Hail Queen. Hail Queen. They get that from this verse. You see, here's what we need to understand. And this is just kind of like the academic part of the message. But I want us to make sure we get this. Mary is not what they have made her in to be. Mary is not, first of all, the perpetual virgin. Some people believe, many, many people believe uh, that Mary, even after Jesus was born, remained a virgin for the rest of her life. And you've got the verse, you got the, the, the references there, Mark 6, Mark 12. Like, it's very clear that Mary had children after Jesus, that Jesus had brothers, he had siblings. She's not the perpetual virgin. virgin. She's also not the sinless one. Romans 3.23 tells us this, for all have sinned. All includes Mary. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. She's not the mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. The man, Christ Jesus. That The idea of praying to Mary, like this, this tells us right here we shouldn't do that. The Redeemer, she's not the Redeemer. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. There's no one else, only Jesus. And lastly, Mary is not the queen of heaven or the queen of the universe. Revelation 4 and 5, you get this great picture of the throne room of heaven. And in no way, shape, or form do you see anywhere in there this idea of a queen sitting on a throne. It's not that. That's not what Mary is. And while we don't want to ascribe to Mary that which only belongs to God, neither do we want to minimize her place in the Christmas story. Because she has a prominent place in the story of redemption that God's going to bring about through Jesus. And so that's what we want to focus on today. The idea of Mary as a human being that's just a willing servant of Jesus. And so Gabriel sets up this really great introduction. Says these nice things about Mary. And then look at her response to this little greeting. Verse 29, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. So Gabriel comes. He, he hasn't even told her yet like what's coming. Like some of you already know the story. He's not even told her yet what's about to happen. He's just greeting her. He's just saying something nice about her. And she begins to wonder. In fact, the word wonder there is the same word we get from the word audit. Like she's auditing, she's calculating in her head, what's going on here? Why is this happening to me? And Mary reveals to us with her reaction what's true about her and what's really true about us. That God, God invites you to reject the paradox of pride. He invites you this Christmas to reject the paradox 
of pride. Her reaction reveals her humility because she's sitting here and she's wondering. She's not sitting here thinking, well, it's about time you showed up. I've been sitting here waiting for some angel to come to me to see how great I am. No, that's not her reaction. She never expected to see an angel and receive such a greeting from heaven. This greeting caused her to wonder because she recognized in her own flesh how unworthy she truly is. And this is the paradox that we find at Christmas. The Christmas story is totally about Jesus and people have made it about her. She would have, I mean, I think about this all the time. What if Mary could look down on earth right now? She would be appalled at the people worshiping her. She would, she would completely reject that. That Christmas wasn't about her. And here's the thing. Christmas is also not about you. Our pride, though, it shouts to us this time of year that Christmas is really about us. And it's such a paradox It's such a paradox because this whole season is devoted to focusing on Jesus. Yet so many times, I don't know about you, I find myself focusing on me. The other day I was on my phone doing my responsibility, getting Christmas presents for my kids. And I I was looking and the next thing I know, like 30 minutes later, I've got like one gift for one of my kids and four new things for me. Like, have y'all been dealing with this? I've been dealing with this. Like, you'll go look for gifts for others, and somehow you'll spend money on yourself. Focused on myself. I'm so ashamed to admit this, and I'm going to have to retract this uh, after today. We've got all the young marrieds from the Connect group at 930. They're coming to our house today uh, for, like, our little Christmas Connect group party or whatever. And literally, this is what I told my wife, like, two days ago. Hide my cookies. I'm dead serious. I literally said to her, hide my cookies. Because I, didn't, I love my group, but I don't want to meet my cookies. Isn't it weird that we're going to get around family this time of year? And for some of us, we are the best, most civil, sociable people on planet Earth. Until Christmas comes... And we get around some of our extended family and we become so childish, so demanding. It's this, it's this paradox of Christmas where we're supposed to be focusing on Jesus and yet we begin to focus in on ourselves. The Catholic Church might be conspiring to make Mary more than she is, but our own hearts do the same thing with us. We try to make us something more than we are. And I don't want you to ever forget the the great villain of Christmas. Do you remember who the great villain of Christmas is apart from the the, the enemy, apart from Satan? The great villain of Christmas was also the most, most important person in the land, King Herod. And yet he was so filled with pride. The invitation of Christmas is reject our pride. To not presume that all of this is just for us. It's not for us. It's ultimately about 
Jesus. Look at verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? This is further proof of what we were talking about early, that she's, it's not just, she's not just a young woman. She believed the promise here, but she didn't understand the performance of the miracle. How can a virgin give birth to a child? Look at, look at what Gabriel says in verse 35. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come to you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Uh, it's important for us to understand this because I think sometimes the Greek culture and the Roman culture of this time might kind of dominate or think we might even have this stray thought that, that seems almost perverse. But in the Greek and Roman culture, you know, when you think of the god Zeus or, or these, these false gods, you know, like it was this idea that Zeus would come down and be intimate with a woman. This is not the picture we have here. This isn't some kind of pagan sexual encounter with Mary. No, this is an act of creation in the womb that the Holy Spirit is going to perform. But think about the words that Gabriel is saying to her. Like all of this language here of she is literally going to bring about the Messiah. She's going to carry the Messiah. Like I, I don't know if you remember this song, but I, I love the phrase in this song. The child that she's going to deliver will one day deliver her. And that, that blows my mind when I think about it. And imagine what Mary's experiencing, hearing this, like for the first time, all of this is just is hitting her at once. And then, I, I really think about this a lot. There's like this powerful pause between verse 37 and verse 38. Like if you wanted to, you don't have to, but if you write in your Bible, I'd put a little mark or a little vertical line there between 37 and 38 because 37 is the end of everything that Gabriel is going to tell her. And then 38, she gives her response. And who knows, maybe it took her like 30 seconds. Maybe she was just right out of the gate. But I love her response. It says in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Think about that, guys. She receives it all. She receives everything that Gabriel said to her. And like Mary, God invites you to receive the blessing with the burden. The blessing with the burden. What an incredible blessing bestowed on Mary and what an incredible burden, right? I mean, think about this. Think of what Mary is embracing here. In this moment, Mary opened herself up to an entire life of whispers behind her back. 
Because no one would ever believe that this is how this child came into being. False accusations she would hear for the rest of her life. In fact, even after her life, after death, there are historians right now trying to promote this idea that Mary was actually raped by a Roman soldier. Like even today, false accusations, and she just says, may your word be fulfilled. I'm here. I'm available. I'm going to take the blessing with the burden. And that was the smallest part of Mary's burden. Think about her life for just a minute. It never got easy for her. 16, she delivers her child in a barn. At 28, she loses Jesus at the temple. And when she finally catches up with Jesus, you know what he says to her? He says, in a, in a very respectful, great way, he's basically saying, where, where did you think I'd be? I'm here with my father. And at this moment, she had to start putting together, man, like this is a child like no one else. In her thir- 20s and 30s, she realizes she has a kid like no other in her house. Imagine parenting perfect Jesus with all her other children. Like that alone would be difficult. Somewhere, most scholars believe somewhere in her 20s and 30s, she prematurely loses her husband. Like the guy that's supposed to be there to help her with all of this, he dies. At 46, she's at a wedding in Cana, and when the wine runs out, she pulls Jesus to the side, and she says, hey, I need you, I need you to do something. I need you to perform this miracle. I need you to intervene. How does she know? How does she know he could do that? She'd been living with the guy. She knew what Jesus was all about. And at age 46, she pulls the curtain back to the world of who Jesus really is. And from 46 to 49, she is watching Jesus get all this notoriety, all this famous, like Jesus like rises to fame. Some great fame and some really bad fame, like people trying to kill him. And then at 49... She stands at the foot of a cross and watches her son be gruesomely, brutally murdered, crucified. Could you imagine that as a mom? She does get to see him three days later. He's resurrected. But then, and, and it's bittersweet, it's wonderful he's resurrected, obviously. But then, like 40 days later... He ascends into heaven and she has to say goodbye again. This is the life of Mary. A great blessing with a burden that she joyfully accepts. We have a similar invitation, don't we? Not necessarily to carry the child of Jesus, but to carry the name of Jesus. A great blessing with a burden. I mean, what does following Jesus cost you? What does Jesus, what does following Jesus cost you? Luke 14, Jesus tells us it's going to cost something. At best, at greatest cost, we give our very physical life to follow Jesus. And there's people all over the world right now that are doing that very thing. They are giving over their very physical breath to follow Jesus. 
At greatest cost, it's our physical life. At least cost, we live a life being misunderstood by the world. And I would dare caution you to think this. If, if following Jesus isn't, isn't costing you anything, that's something to be concerned about. Because when we choose to follow Jesus, we not only receive the blessing of Christ, we receive the burden of Christ. The fact that we get to carry his name. And it's not going to make life perfect and it's not going to make life easy. It surely didn't for Mary and it's not for us as believers. But then there's beauty in the burden. Jesus promises us this in, in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It's this idea of an oxen. He's talking about two different oxen yoked together. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He doesn't say there, and my burden is non-existent. He's, he's given us this picture of no matter what we go through in life, no matter if you're married and you have to watch your son die on a cross or whether you're in Shelby, North Carolina, living your life the way you're living it right now and you're dealing with the burden, the blessing and the burden of following Jesus, no matter what, we are yoked together with Christ and he is carrying the majority of the burden for us. But we have the privilege at Christmas and every other time of the year, we have the privilege to be, to receive not only the blessing, but also the burden of following Jesus. And then there's this little interlude in the story. It kind of takes us out for a minute, and I love it. I want to read it real quick. In verse 39, it says, At that time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Zechariah was Elizabeth's husband. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I love this, and it's kind of a minor thing to mention here, but it's important we mention it. I love how God is giving us a picture of the sanctity of life here. A fetus didn't leap in the womb. A baby leaps in the womb. Verse 42, in a loud voice, Elizabeth exclaimed, Blessed are you among women. Again, among women, not above women. Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Now, two things I want us to see here that I think are pretty awesome. And my wife actually helped me come up with, with one of these. The first thing that I see here, and, and really, again, uh, this is something we were doing a little devotional that kind of mentioned this. And Crystal, my wife, shared this. And that's brilliant. That you have an interaction with, with women here. And, and I don't fully understand this. Maybe you women do. But there's no competition here. 
There's no comparison between Elizabeth and Mary. It's not like Mary's sitting there saying, man, I wish I could have a normal pregnancy with a husband and have all that together. And it's not like Elizabeth saying, man, I wish I could birth the Messiah. That would be even better than this prophet that's, that I've got carried. No, there's none of that. No competition at all between these two women. But secondly, you don't hear any trace of worry. There's no worry in here. There's no competition or comparison. And there's no worrying how this is all going to play out. And let's be honest. That's remarkable. Because when you think you've got stress, think about Mary for just a minute. There's a, a way to measure stress. It's called the Ray, or excuse me, the Holmes Ray inventory. And here's like the first little bit. There's 12 items here. I think the, the official one has 30 or 40 items on it. And these are ranked as to what brings about stress. Just think about Mary in the context of just the first 12 for just a minute. First of all, Number seven, marriage, right? Like she's not technically married with everything, but we just said she's pledged to be married, which in that day and time was not much different. So she's got number seven going on in her life on, on the level of stress. Then you got number three, marital separation. Once Joseph finds out about this, what does he do? He's thinking, hey, I need to, I need to divorce her quietly. I need to put her out. She's got number three going on. She's, she's got number nine going on, marital reconciliation. Once Gabriel clears up the matter with Joseph, then she's having to be reconciled to Joseph. Number nine's going on. And then the bottom there, number 12's going on. Like you look at this, and if you add up just those numbers in the top 12, the, the definition is this, imminent threat of mental breakdown. And yet Mary isn't projecting any of that. You don't see any of that in the text. Just pure joy that's leading her to worship. God invites you to replace the worry with worship. Mary begins worshiping that consists mostly of words and visual pictures that are found in the Old Testament, which is really remarkable when you think about it, because it's not like they had their copy of God's Word sitting in front of them where she was reading this every day. No, she would go to the synagogue, even as a young girl, and hear the words from the prophet, hear the words from the Old Testament that the rabbi was reading, and she ate that up. She was saturated in the word of God. What's leaping out of her are the words of God that she knew and it was shaping her thinking. You catch that? Like for a lot of us, that's part of the reason we worry so much because we don't know the word of God. But when we know the word of God, when it saturates us, it begins to shape our thinking. In verse 46, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord. You know, a lot of times when we think of magnification, we think of a microscope, don't we? Like I think of a microscope or I think of one of those magnifying glasses. And, you know, when you think of it like that, what does a microscope do? It takes something small and makes it big. But think about it. It's not that we're making a small God 
look bigger than he is. That's probably not the best definition for us when we think of magnification. It's not microscope, it's more telescope. Telescope magnifying makes a big thing begin to look as big as it really is. I want to make God's greatness begin to look as big as it really is. To bring in close this big God that eclipses all of my worry and all of my stress. That the circumstances of life are minimized when the character of God is magnified. And this is what Mary's doing here. She's not focusing on all the other exterior circumstances that are out of her control. What she's focusing on is the character of God. And she lists several things, several he has phrases. In fact, you can literally underline them in your Bible. She says seven he has phrases, things that he's doing on her behalf and on behalf of of others. Look at verse 48. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one, he has done great things for me. Holy is his name. She worships God because she is being seen by God. I think about this. Just, just a minute ago, all these kids were on stage. And I was, I was trying to find my kids. And I was over here. And I'm like, I can't find them over here. So I got on this side. And I saw one of my kids. And I saw some of y'all's kids. And, and you know what they were doing? It, it was so interesting. Like, before the song even started, they're looking. What are they looking for? They're looking for you. And the minute they see you, something changes in them. They're being seen by someone who loves them. And this is what Mary's worshiping God for, that there is a perfect father who sees her. And there is a perfect father who sees you. And it gives us reason to worship. Verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation. It wasn't just what God was doing for her that caused her to worship. It was what God was doing for everyone else that she was also worshiping. Verse 51. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. But he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. But he has sent the rich away empty. The gospel turns everything upside down. Dethroning the mighty. The proud are scattered. The nobodies are exalted. The hungry are filled. The rich end up poor. The grace of God works contrary to the thoughts and ways of this world's system. In verse 54, she says, He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. Just as he promised our ancestors. I love this worship. She's not, only, she's not only focused on herself. She's worshiping because of what God's doing for others. She's worshiping on what God's doing on behalf of Israel. Faithless Israel, right? 
the, the, the nation that constantly turned their back on God. And here we find that, guess what? Israel is still on the guest list. That God still extends mercy to Israel. In fact, that's the whole theme of what she's singing about. Mercy. Verses 50 and 51, you see the same word. Mercy. Look back at verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And then in verse 54, God remembers to be merciful. Think about this. God who did not owe us anything, extended to us everything. Emmanuel, God with us, came here on earth. He lived, he died, he paid your debt, and is now gloriously resurrected and seated at the right hand of the Father. And the question is, are you even shaken by that? Like when we sing songs of, oh, come let us adore him. When we sing songs, hope has a name, Emmanuel. Does that stir anything? Have we gotten over the gospel? Or are we still blown away by the gospel? When mercy is alive in your heart, worship is alive in your mouth. And it does not have room for worry. That's the beauty of worship. That when we engage, not just for one hour on a Sunday morning, but when our lifestyle, worship is a lifestyle, when it is just perpetuating every facet of our lives, guess what? We don't have time to worry. We don't have time to stress. We don't have time to get overwhelmed by all of the demands of this season. That God is inviting you to replace the worry in your life with the worship of him this Christmas. And I love this. She didn't just receive the blessing. She was a conduit of the blessing. That worship is both receiving and radiating. She is receiving the mercy of God and she is radiating to others the mercy of God kind of like a sponge. I heard a pastor talk about this one time, and I'm like, man, that's, that's brilliant. Some of you guys are sponge people in your house. Our family is kind of like a hybrid sponge. It's one of those Norwex cloths that's supposed to magically clean itself, whatever. But anyway, we, we, have, we have several. And, uh, and here's the thing. For some of you, man, you're going to resonate with this because we're, we're going to go on uh, to California, and we're going to come back, and I can go ahead and tell you now. Once I see the sponge in the sink, you know what it's going to be? It's going to be dried up. It's going to be crusty. It's going to be stiff because that's what they do, right? Like when they empty out of water and they completely dry out, they're stiff. They're crusty. But here's what's true about a sponge. It's made to be pliable and usable. And what happens when the water hits the sponge? It completely changes. The properties of the sponge change into something that is useful and I'm going to tell you some of you guys you're walking into this Christmas season and you're a dried crusty sponge <laughs> and it's funny to say but man for some of you like you're feeling that way you're feeling dried up you're feeling just stress 
and worry and overwhelmed. And the good news is the sink is running with the mercy of God. And he is just saying, hey, just get under the flow. Just get under the flow. And when we experience God's mercy, when we're reminded of God's mercy, we don't have to be told how to worship. It just naturally comes out. Or maybe, maybe you're a different kind of sponge. This is more of the sponge that's in our house. Maybe you're the sponge that when I go to grab the sponge, because my boys never wring it out, it's sitting in the bottom of the sink, and it is sopping wet, and it is gross, and it is cold, and it's just miserable to touch, right? Why? Because they never wring it out. They, they might not have even done what they were supposed to with it. Maybe you're here today, and you're more like that sponge. A cold, wet sponge sitting in the sink. You are filled up with all kinds of stuff about, about Christmas. You know all the Jesus facts. You know all the Christmas facts. In fact, I've not told you a thing new this morning because you already know it all. You've been studying this forever. You know everything there is to know about the Christmas story. But God wants us to be in his hand wringing out his mercy to others. That we're not meant to sit in the sink sopping wet. We're meant to be used in the hand of a mighty God to dispense and radiate mercy to others. Not just receiving the mercy, but radiating the mercy. So here's the RSVP to the Christmas guest list. Have you accepted God's invitation to join him this Christmas? Or are you too worried? Are you too prideful? Are you going to miss this season altogether because of everything else in your world? Or are you going to receive the mercy of God and radiate the mercy of God? Will you bow your heads with me? The good news is that no one, not one person here this morning has to leave today separated from the mercy of God. Not one person. That every person in this room can receive God's mercy. And for some of you, you have already made that decision. Man, praise God for that. If, the, if that's not you today, there's going to be prayer partners up here at the front. I want to invite you, come forward today and today get under the mercy of God today. But also, every person can radiate that same mercy. That worship isn't just the solution to our worry. Worship invites others to the party, to the mercy of God. Maybe today you are so focused on yourself. Maybe you do love Jesus. Maybe you've been a Christian for many years. But for whatever reason, the paradox of Christmas is hitting you, and you've just been so focused on yourself, you've been focused on your concerns, your worries, your to-do list, that you are just missing out on what God's purpose is for your life this Christmas. To not only receive that mercy, but to wring it out on others. And today, on December 10th, let's, let's get into this season with the right mindset of worship and what God has for us. 
at the beginning of this morning, I asked you to raise your hand if you were stressed, raise your hand if you were weary, raise your hand if you were overwhelmed with something, and many hands went up. And maybe this morning, during this song, maybe the hand needs to raise for something more. Maybe the hand needs to raise to say, Lord, I'm tired of raising my hand for worry. I want to raise my hand in worship. The song says, waiting here for you, waiting here for you, Jesus, with our hands lifted high in praise, in worship. Is that the story of your heart this morning and today? Let that be true. As we sing together, the prayer partners are going to be at the front. Let's stand to our feet and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this moment we have together. Father, help us not to miss Christmas. Help us not to be so concerned with our own things and our own pursuits and our own plans and parties and get-togethers and worries and stresses, Lord, our own pride. Father, help us this season to get under your mercy, Lord to be reminded of your mercy and to radiate that mercy out to a lost and dying world. Lord, help us to worship you in this moment and all the moments that lead up to Christmas. In Jesus' name.